Welcome to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series features founders, investors, and legal talent that will help you embrace technology and transform your organization for a better future. This series is hosted by Natalie Pierce, the chair of Gunderson Detmer's Labor and Employment Law Practice. Natalie and her guests are committed to helping you develop new playbooks to elevate your game. Hey, this is Natalie, and welcome to Future Work Playbook Season 5. This season will focus on the meteoric rise of generative AI. This technology is transforming all industries, so we expedited this new season to match its speed. Generative AI includes powerful language and reinforcement learning models that are sparking innovation, and even challenging our conception of creativity. They're crafting stunning art from platforms like Dolly, creating lifelike deep fakes from ChatGPT, generating virtual realities from MidJourney, and even penning human-like text from Bing Chat and Bard. So we're turning to distinguished experts on the front lines of AI research and application to share their insights and predictions. We'll explore the technology, its ethical and legal challenges, and the possibility it opens for the future. With that, I want to welcome our first two guests, my esteemed colleagues from Gunderson, our Chief Innovation Officer, Joe Green, and our legal engineering and data strategy manager, Joe Scrudato. Welcome, Joe and John. Thanks for to be here. Thanks for having us. Why don't we start with you, Joe, okay? Sure. Can you tell our listeners about your journey to your role as our chief innovation officer? Sure thing. Well, it's been a a winding journey, to be sure. So I, I started out practicing law in New York City at a big Wall Street law firm, Simpson Thatcher. And moved into the startup world, working at Gunderson as a about a mid-level associate and practiced as a, as a practicing lawyer, working with venture-backed startups and, and venture capitalists, you know, kind of all through the company life cycle and through exit and did that uh, for quite a number of years. And that's when I really, you know, kind of took a bit of a detour and, you know, kind of fell hard into the world of, of legal technology. I went to work at Thomson Reuters, which is a major, major legal technology yes. provider. And that's where I really uh, you know, started thinking about the legal industry more broadly, how technology is influencing practice of law, the delivery of legal services, and the business of law. And that's ultimately what led me back to Gunderson. I still had a lot of friends here at the firm. And as I was learning more and more and seeing kind of the, the writing on the wall for what was coming for law firms in the future... I was uh, encouraged to come back and work on those kinds of problems here. Well, you know, I joined and you rejoined Gunderson in 2020. And I remember just geeking out with you over legal innovation and building new tools and continuing delivering, finding ways, better ways to deliver the best services <laughs> to our clients and then helping me to find and recruit the amazing Stephanie, who leads our practice innovation team. And I I just want to say, Joe, it's been such a pleasure and your enthusiasm has not dwindled one bit the entire time that I've had the great pleasure of working with you. Well, thank you. But the feeling is very much mutual. Your, Your team has been an absolute pleasure to work with and really just done such innovative things. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. 
So what about you, John? How does your experience support the firm's innovation strategy? Sure, yeah. I think like Joe's experience, my journey through my current position is pretty winding. I guess I kind of start back when I first graduated from undergrad. I co-founded a startup with a friend of mine from our mechanical engineering program. And uh, in the course of trying to create a startup in the glamorous world of enterprise data center cooling, I had to work a lot with our lawyers, uh, both for you know general corporate work as well as some traditional patents. It just kind of struck me that you know the legal system is so important to what we were doing, and yet my interface with it and the way services were delivered were so different from the way we experience services in a lot of other industries. You know, this was you know 2011, 2012, so this is already over 10 years ago. Um, but I think in a lot of ways it, it really hasn't changed that much. So I was just struck. By a, again, both the importance of legal as well as the, the slow pace with which people kind of innovated on the service delivery piece. Um, and you know, that was actually the reason I went to law school. Whether or not that was the right reason to go to law school, <laughs> I don't know. But um, it's been a good journey from there. I I wanted to work with startups as a practicing lawyer, so I I came to Gunderson and I practiced in New York. I took a little bit of a uh, hiatus to work with some early stage startups and then ultimately ended up doing legal innovation at Latham and Watkins and then returned back to Gunderson about two years ago now. So um, I think it's just something that's always been interesting to me. And as a way I like to think I can kind of combine my my background in both engineering and hard sciences with also my interest in humanities and you know my law degree. I love it. Uh, it sounds like a perfect path to me. And we're so, so lucky that you both found your way back to Gunderson. Let's talk about, let's get into the innovation piece of it. So have law firms traditionally had an innovation practice? What has changed in the last five years and how is Gunderson different in that regard? It really is a, a relatively new and kind of evolving function with, within a law firm. You know, I think for many law firms, uh, it's been an outgrowth of knowledge management. And I think that's that's similar to to our experience. And knowledge management itself in, in many law firms is is relatively new and kind of an outgrowth of the library. And so, you know, when it comes to managing knowledge and, and helping lawyers do their jobs and have all the tools and and information that they need to do their jobs. You know, that increasingly as law firms got bigger, as all of the knowledge and information that needed to be captured and and disseminated got more complex, became, you know, something that really needed to lean on technology. And so the people who were in that business also got into the technology business. And, you know, from there, it's really kind of a short hop, skip and a jump to looking at how technology can streamline and improve all the ways in which a law firm functions. So that's really, I think, where this where this is, has come from. And I think there's been market dynamics as well. Uh, clients are, are being asked to do a whole lot more with less in terms of resources on, on the legal front. And so they're looking to their law firms to fill in the gaps and to be able to do it more efficiently, more cost effectively, even though there's been an explosion of law and regulation and complexity. It's you know a situation that really cries out for new ways of doing things and leveraging kind of the latest technology to do it. Absolutely. I mean, what's very clear is clients don't want to pay for legal work that humans just don't need to be doing. And we're seeing such a great proliferation of tools that are available. And in the same way that 
We represent the disruptors of every industry. You know, our legal industry is far from immune to those types of changes. And, you know, this whole season, we're focusing on generative AI because, wow, you know, we've had, we've been using AI powered tools in the legal industry for many, many years now. And, and generative AI is just rocket fuel in terms of, of the new tools that we will see coming out. And one thing that I think it's really important for us to, you know, to keep in mind when we're talking about what's happening to our legal practice in general is that the use of of the tools, including generative AI, certainly doesn't exempt us from our obligation to comply with ethical standards. But it's also very true that part of our ethical duty of competence includes staying abreast of changes in law and its practice, including the benefits and risks that are associated with emerging technologies. And so I completely agree with what you're what you're saying, Joe. And I think that we're in a period of where we're just going to have to do a lot of rapid learning and vetting and adopting of tools that are that are out there. So with chat GPT really changing the landscape and innovation as a whole, what are what are some of the initial concerns with law firms using these tools and where do you think that conversation is headed? Sure. Well, you know, I think that so much depends on the context and, you know, kind of the way that lawyers use these tools as the way that they use tools that already exist, like Google or or email or, you know, whatever else, right? I mean, there, there are potential dangers in using any technology if you don't know how they work and, and, you know, how best to leverage them. I think with the generative AI tools that are out there right now, particularly like, like ChatGPT, mm-hmm. my view of it is that mm-hmm. it's an incredible accelerant for subject matter experts for people who know the answers to the questions that they're asking, but who would have to spend effort to craft craft a response, to craft an explanation or things like that, it allows the subject matter expert to get kind of that first draft or, you know, kind of the pieces of what they need in order to, you know, to do their jobs so much more quickly. But they have the expertise to know when it's not quite accurate or it's not quite complete. Really important, especially in fields like law where, you know, accuracy and completeness are, are really crucial. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that even for junior lawyers, it's something that, you know, can be helpful to them, but there's more, it's a little bit more fraught because they may not know when what they're getting is not accurate or complete. And then for clients, there's, I imagine, a huge temptation to, in the same way that you might Google, uh, look on WebMD or (laughs) symptoms of of how you're feeling to kind of self-diagnose a problem or use generative AI tools, you know, in ways that they really weren't intended to be used. And, you know, that I think can be problematic. Yeah, no, those hallucinations, they are real. And it is particularly concerning because of the confidence that <laughs> the chat GPT is a, for example, the, the confidence with, with which answers are provided. Uh, so completely agree with you that having that expertise and really vetting the information is critical, but it can be a great head start. And also really has the potential to make more enjoyable the practice of law for the new generation of lawyers. Absolutely. John, why don't you talk to our listeners a little bit about your projects 
using either chat GPT or other types of generative AI? Sure. Yeah, I, I'm definitely happy to talk about that. And maybe also going back a little bit further too, I think one of the really interesting things about what's happened in the last six months is I think people's perception of where technology, what it's capable of doing has changed dramatically. And I think I mean, honestly, I think they went from not even knowing about this stuff, and if anyone did, probably vastly underestimating it to vastly overestimating it. So there's been an interesting correction um, in that respect. But in terms of the technology itself, so to speak, uh, the sort of underpinnings of chat GPT and generative AI go back quite a ways to 2016 with some of the research. I hope that's the right year. I think it's 2016. Um, it was actually done at Google. And uh, one of the what's called a, a large language model or these kind of large machine learning models that are essentially neural networks. Um, one of the things that came out of that early research was called the transformer. And it's uh, essentially a type of AI that lets you manipulate text. And so you can, you can use it to do text generation. You can use it to do question answering. You can use it to do translations. It's very, very powerful. But one of the things that I think held back perception of what it could do, but you really had to be a technical expert to use it. Um, and not just a programmer, not just a software engineer, but someone who was a, a true machine learning expert. And so we've actually been using transformer-based question answering tools since I got back in uh, 21. So, you know, we, we've kind of been ahead of the curve, I think, in a lot of ways in using the technology that underlies the kind of generative AI chat GPT uh, perception revolution, as well as you know, the actual tool itself. Yeah. We use that in particular for deal data extraction. So we have a, a tool that basically if we give it hundreds or thousands of documents, and I think at this point we've run a couple thousand through it, um, we can essentially set up a battery of questions. So who are the parties? Is there preference or liquidation preference for the preferred stock? What's the name of the company? What series financing is this? And it'll actually automatically go through for every document and pull out the answers that respond to those questions and then put it into an Excel spreadsheet, or we can pull it out and put it right into our, our data warehouse. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's it's incredible technology. At this point, we've we've used uh, we've worked with our, our summers as well as our first years to do some QCing and kind of get them trained on how to do prompt engineering, how to do quality control and review the outputs of the tool. And I think one of the things we've kind of learned through that process is kind of as Joe said, right? Like you need to know what you're looking for and the tool is an accelerant that helps you find it. But ultimately, at least right now, you know, it's people that have to be in the driver's seat. And we've been working with, you know, again, at this point, dozens, maybe over a hundred people here to get them kind of trained up and familiar with, with what that means. I love it. Well, you know, we have a unique ECVC focused boutique here at Gunderson. And in many ways, it's made it easier to build the law firm of the future. And I think that's a perfect example of that. It's a great place to have fun with this new tech. I mean, we have such a tech forward culture. And I think, you know, one of the things you see, not just from, you know, folks on our team, which again, I love our team, but also from our associates, our partners, our summer, like everyone seems to really get this kind of stuff. And I think, at least I know, speaking for myself, you don't end up in a place like Gunderson unless you have a real passion for technology or at least kind of the startup world. So yeah, it really, it's such an asset to what we do. So true. So true, John. And access to data is 
going to be, as we know, data is gold. So it's going to be key to building that law firm of the future. How can you give any other examples of ways that data can has been or can be leveraged projects, other projects that we're maybe building with data? Well, I can, Joe, I don't know if you have any you want to throw in there, but another one I could mention real quick while we're still talking about ChatGPT is we actually have our own private instance of ChatGPT that we're, we're building a tool that will essentially let folks here at Gunderson use ChatGPT, but in a way that solves for a lot of the ethical and information security concerns that typically will come up when people talk about ChatGPT. So it's, you know, it's not a, a public free service. It's not even an API hosted by ChatGPT. We actually are hosting that in our uh, private cloud. And we're building an application where you know, anyone from Gunderson could just click, use their Gunderson ID, log in, have access not only to ChatGPT, uh, but also to some tools to load documents and then ask questions of those documents. A critical tool for so many reasons. Joe, anything you want to throw in? No, absolutely. You know, I, on the data front, you know, that's that's actually where John and I spent, <laughs> I think, the, the vast bulk of our time thinking through how to harvest data from all of the, the work that we do for our clients for the benefit of our clients. So yeah. make it easier for us to give clients the the benefit of our, our firm's kind of collective experience and expertise and what we see in the marketplace. So we've done a lot of work around that, as well as using that data for all kinds of, you know, different analytics and, and more kind of advanced use cases that we're exploring as well. Awesome. So at the end of the day, your rules are about ensuring ways for us to continue delivering world-class client service with the use of technology and innovation. Well, I've heard you talk about something called GDHQ. Can you give us a sneak peek into what this is and what to expect? Yeah, absolutely. So GDHQ right now is purely internal facing, but it we will soon be released to, to our clients. But you know, effectively, that's the place that we're trying to we have so many different solutions, so many different tools, so many different things that you know our attorneys use to deliver services to our clients. And we also already have a whole bunch of tools that, that your group is quite familiar with and has worked quite a lot on that allow our clients to use our, our technology to kind of meet their, meet their own legal needs. Uh, so whether that's forms that we used to provide them in Word that we now provide them through software that's always updated and always containing the right forms, something that we call our contract generator, to another thing that your group has pioneered uh, that we call smart requests, where clients can start work, kick off processes with Gunderson attorneys by giving us the information that we need upfront through a web-based platform. All of those are things that we've we've already been doing. And really what we're trying to do is kind of package them all together into a single experience that we already are using internally, which we call GDHQ. It's it's your, your Gunderson headquarters. And that is someplace that we can plan to continue building on, adding rich content, data, access to documents, as well as a host of other of our innovations that we have in the works. Well, as you know, I'm a I'm a huge, huge fan of GDHQ and I very much looking forward to to it being released publicly. So there's a lot of overlap with technology companies and some of our technology platforms like Fund Formation Portal or, or GDHQ, which we just talked about. Why would a law firm build its own platforms if ones already exist? 
That's such a great question. No, we could, <laughs> Joe, we could run with that forever. <laughs> do you want me to kick that one off or do you want to start that one? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's so many answers to that question and maybe taking a step back. I think it's helpful for people to, and I'm sure most of the people who are listening to this will understand a good amount about how the legal industry works, but I, you'll be surprised. A lot of the people who build tools for legal, quote unquote, um, I think don't necessarily have a great understanding of how varied the workflows are and how, mm-hmm. you know, from not, not even from firm to firm, but even within firms, you're talking about a giant multinational firm with a lot of practice groups, the needs are so different. And the types of problems that people have are so different that it's very, very difficult to find tools that truly solve a sort of generic universal problem. I mean, there are certainly tools that get closer to that. I mean, I think we have some categories of things like document automation and e-signatures and maybe some of the contract analytics tools that are out there. But even in all of those, like you have to do a lot of customization to truly get it right for your client and your practice group. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the customization is more work than building something from scratch. And a lot of times it's not. It's, you have to figure that out. Yeah, it's more fun, right? <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're both fun. It's a challenge in different ways. Yeah. <laughs> and our, our philosophy around that is that we're a law firm, right? We're, we, we, we're a law firm that also yeah. is a very focused law firm. So we, we really understand the benefit of really focusing on what your kind of highest and best use, your core competencies are. And being a software development factory is, is not usually the core competency of a, of a law firm. We really do, wherever possible, work with third-party vendors and partner with them to try to build us great software that will also work for other people so that they can continue to invest in it. It becomes a successful business. And then we can use that software to do the thing that we're really excellent at. But that being said, there have been a number of a number of instances, and we will continue to encounter them, I'm sure, where there just isn't a solution in the marketplace, or there's no solution that that really kind of gets at the problem that that we need to solve. And that's where having very fortunately having people like John with uh, you know serious technical skills, you know, we're able to solve those problems. And we've been doing that for years. Uh, you know, our, our fund portal for our fund formation practice, which allows the limited partners of our of our venture funds who are investing in those funds to provide us with a whole host of information, was the first game in town. There were no platforms out there that were facilitating that process. And so we built one because there was a better way. We could see there was a better way and, and nobody else was solving that problem. Now there are half a dozen or a dozen platforms out there that are third-party tech platforms that are competing in that space. And so from our perspective, that's great. Now that there's a whole bunch of other solutions that those companies are really investing in, we keep tabs on those to see as you know, as soon as those solve the problem for us, as well as the solution that we have, then we may very well use that. We, you know, we have a, a pretty fluid approach to you know whether we build, buy, or partner uh, on, on any particular solution. I'm just going to add, I think that's also one of the reasons why Gunderson and our team's been pushing for uh, more data standards and kind of open access to a lot of these tools across the industry. And it's just, again, you know, having the, the flexibility to base something off of a commercial tool as much as you can, but bring our expertise and our tools and our platform to that third-party tool and have a seamless integration. I think it's in a lot of ways the best of both worlds, but a lot of vendors in the space are unfortunately not quite in that mindset yet. Sure. Well, and you've both been leaders in terms of efforts to standardize data across the, at least our space, the ECVC space. And I know you've worked with some of our 
some of the other firms in the space and really taking advantage of what what you can do to standardize that data. You want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. This is something that that's very near and dear to both <laughs> both of our hearts. Uh, John and I were were part of the very small initial group that had this idea that startup cap table data, capitalization data, which was being stored sometimes in an Excel file, sometimes in an online platform, but was increasingly needed for all kinds of different use cases and all kinds of different software, that there was there was a way for uh, the industry to come together to create a data standard to make the, the movement and interoperability of that information much better. And uh, John has really, uh, John's been leading the, the technical working group for the Open Cap Table Coalition, which now has over 50 members, including you know all of the major law firms who work in the ECBC space, as well as all of the major cap table platforms, big investment banks, and, and a whole host of others, uh, startup accelerators, et cetera. John's been leading the technical working group of engineers to build that standard. So John, if you want to share a little bit about your work with Open Cap Table. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, like Joe said, I've been leading the technical working groups. We have weekly calls and we've been building the actual data standard that lets uh, computers communicate with one another and kind of have standardized cap table information. The corollary to that though, which is something that, that I've found really rewarding and I think is really interesting is it's not just engineers and uh, a technical standard. We also work really closely with a large group of lawyers who are experts in how this information is used, what data points are relevant, and being able to kind of have a seamless handoff between those two groups of people uh, is a big part of what I've had to try to do in my role leading the technical working group and what Joe and Devine and others have done kind of on the legal working group. And I think this may be one of the few situations where you actually have a group of lawyers and a group of engineers having a pretty seamless collaboration to translate the legal information into structured data and vice versa. And at the moment, we're working on a couple of integrations. Uh, there's a number of folks who support exports to OCF. So it's starting to get some traction and it's been a really exciting project, three years in the making. For our listeners who may not be as, uh, do as much work in the space, can you just explain why it is so critical to have that meeting of the minds, like getting 50 firms, investment banks, et cetera, on board with the coalition? Yeah. You know, again, it's sort of what I spoke to. One of the things that got me interested in legal innovation in the first place, right, is everyone has this expectation that I think is met in a lot of industries, although that's debatable, right? Like you have online banking, you have your email, you don't, you don't really look for mail a lot of times now, right? You just log on, you get your email, you have all of these digital services and they all to some degree or another, it's pretty easy to integrate them. They, they talk to one another. Sure, some do it better than others. Sometimes it doesn't work as well as you want, but th there's a lot of power given to you, the individual or the client or the customer, to connect these things and have them work for you. And in our space, in, in ECBC practice, for venture-backed startups, the cap table and the information in the cap table is some of the most critical information that a startup CEO and the board uh, have to deal with. because it dictates where you are in your life cycle, it dictates the burn rate you shoot for, it dictates your subsequent financing terms. It's really, that's sort of the core of the entire exercise of creating a, a venture-backed company. And just as individuals kind of want to take important information from one system to another, you find that a lot of companies, a lot of clients 
want to do that in their life cycle as a venture-backed startup. And then they find that the status quo is it's really hard to do that. So, you know, maybe they want to have a secondary offering or they want, they want to take data from their cap table platform and put it into their HR system, or they want to take HR information about their employees and then put that in their cap table system. And unfortunately, most of the time today, you have to take that information and you have to copy it manually from one place to another. And even if that weren't bad enough, a lot of times the way people refer to the information that's relevant is slightly different. So you just have a situation where people are forced to spend a tremendous amount of time copying information manually from place to place. And not only that, think about how to translate it from the dialect that one system uses to the dialect that another. And as I'm sure you can imagine, at the rates that most law firms charge, that can add up. And the law firms don't want to do it and the clients don't want to pay for it. Where there's a a pain point, uh, find a solution. And with our clients, it's individuals who are saying there's just got to be a better way and finding that better way. And, and with, you know, again, with the power of data and having some frameworks, standardizing the data, what you can do, what you can build, the information that you can deduce so much faster and where in a time where all of us need to learn to pivot so quickly, these efforts, I, I know our, our clients also thank you for, for everything that the two of you are doing to really do things better in our legal industry. And I'd love to ask you both, what is your advice for other legal professionals who are maybe at a point of trying to get into innovation or like you lead efforts at their firms? Sure, I can start with that one. So I think right now there's not a super direct career path or kind of you know way into doing this. I do think that if you're someone who's already gone to law school and kind of started to practice, that having some subject matter expertise or at least a real understanding of what the pain points are and what the the problems that need to be solved and the mindsets of the people that you need to convince to change the way that they do things in order to solve those problems is really helpful. And I think that, you know, for any young attorney who's interested in this kind of stuff, you know, you don't need to have a title or be in innovation per se to do this kind of work. You just need to have some curiosity, a willingness to try different things and, you know, kind of the boldness to share that with other people at your firm and try to convince people, you know, to, to adopt a new way of doing things. But it is increasingly becoming, like I said, you know, a real function at most law firms and a growing function at that. So combination of having some subject matter expertise, some technical skills or aptitude for sure, and just an interest in solving solving hard problems. We have a lot of hard problems that need solving in this space and being willing to just kind of dig in and dig in and figure out how to solve hard problems. That's my advice. John, John is a kind of knew that he wanted to do this from the get-go. So you might have a different a different perspective. I had a musing that I wanted to do it, but you know, to your point, Joe, it wasn't really a function, right? So like, I kind of had this big idea that we got we should, there's got to be a better way, but I didn't know what that meant. And it took a long time kind of in my own head to figure out, okay, this, this is a marrying of technology and legal expertise and finding ways to improve service delivery. But even then, that wasn't something that people really hired for. Oh. It's one thing to um, have a vague interest in it, but again, to your point, it's it's pretty hard to find a route into doing this full time. I'd echo your points. You know, I think the subject matter expertise obviously is critical. Having the credibility of having worked at a 
large law firm or at least a, a law firm that's kind of you know doing good work, right? Like not don't just do a three month tour of duty or summer associateship and say, all right, I, I'm done. I think you you do need to kind of understand the dynamics within law firms because ultimately, yeah, my experience is this is not most of the problems we solve are not technical problems. And what I mean by that is it's not like we're trying to create cold fusion or launch a rocket. I mean, I'm not to take away from what we do, a lot of it is change management and understanding what our stakeholders want and then finding ways to deploy technology to do that. And a lot of times the technology to do, it's been around for decades, but yeah. the trick is, is knowing that and knowing how to apply it. So yeah, yeah, I think very much agree with you, John. Yeah, people often say in our space that we deal with kind of bringing together technology, people, and process. It's really people, 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 <laughs> process, and then technology is sort of last and honestly the easiest part of this. Getting people to change and getting people to adopt new ways of doing things and think about how they do things differently is 90% of the work, if not more. What fantastic advice. And I'll say, Stephanie and I certainly agree that it doesn't have to. Looking at a problem can, we're using some tools just in, in our practice group that I don't think law firms traditionally would use. And in some ways, we've been able to, uh, Stephanie, certainly just by calling up the people who are developing those tools that we're using that weren't designed for the legal industry necessarily and really getting them, you know, finding some hacks that have allowed us to find ways to continue delivering the best service as quickly as possible. But it's been, it's nice to be at a firm that I think gives us so much support in terms of being disruptors within our own legal industry. So we are unfortunately almost out of time. Uh, John and Joe, will you join me in a quick fire challenge? Absolutely. Okay. Joe, I'll start with you. If you could implement one rule that every AI project must follow, what would it be? <laughs> Oof. <laughs> Don't give the algorithm access to the nuclear codes. John and I were talking about auto GPT the other day, and it scared me greatly. One more rule. I guess I would say, as a general guidepost, try to avoid things that'll try to avoid deploying it in situations that are life or death, <laughs> um, or or have serious ramifications. Right? I mean, I think it's it's a technology that's incredibly powerful. It demos well, but it's not easy to verify the outputs at the moment. And so, if the outputs are governing something that is really important to people's lives, I would probably avoid that application unless you have a way of of verifying the outputs. Keep the human involvement. I think that's Absolutely. key. All right, guys. And what is a common myth about AI that you'd like to debunk? I mean, I the myth that AI is going to replace ever, replace all the humans, I think that to me, I listen, I don't have a crystal ball, but my hope and my expectation is that all of this technology will allow humans to continue to do better things and build more things and do things that are more fulfilling and valuable. Thank you for that one. Agree. <laughs> John? Yeah, I think I have a similar point. It's, I mean, it's not so much debunking a myth as I, I think is it often the case with a lot of new, exciting, and controversial things, right? You kind of have people 
divvy off into camps. And I think we kind of have AI exceptionalists who think that AI very soon will be doing all the things, if not already doing it. And you have folks who are, you know, on the opposite side of the aisle who are just like, you know, it's so overhyped that you can't, it's something that really isn't ready for prime time. I think the answer is in between. Um, but I would say, I, I think that people who talk about AI and act as if they know that it's reasoning or thinking or alive or conscious in some way, I'm not discounting that possibility, uh, but I think there's a lot of evidence that it's not doing that. In a lot of ways, it's basically um, sort of an enhancement of search engines. I mean, there's, there, there's a lot of daylight between how those two things work, how AI and search engines work. Um, but fundamentally, it's just a way of computing information, particularly natural language, and giving you answers based on inputs. And those inputs right now are all from people. I mean, these things are not coming up with these answers on their own. They're not, I mean, there's some contraindicators, but they're not reasoning, right? They're just distilling the best of what people have done. Yeah, completely agree with you both. And thank you so much for doing this episode with us, Joe and John. We stand at an inflection point in terms of how generative AI will impact the legal industry and the world in general. We have a tremendous opportunity to leverage generative AI to drive innovation and bolster efficiency and even contribute to a more equitable society. And it's critical that we understand this technology and use it responsibly. So this will be our focus throughout season five of Future Work Playbook. And Joe and John, thank you again so much for being here with us. Thanks for having us. You've just listened to the Future Work Playbook. This podcast series is brought to you by Gunderson Detmer, the world's number one law firm representing venture capital funds and high growth companies. Join Natalie Pierce on our next episode as she and her guests help prepare your organization for the future. Please subscribe to the Future Work Playbook.